you may not believe this, but today is our last day in the Gospel of Mark. I don't know how long we've been going at the Gospel of Mark, but it's been a little while. I think we started before any of us even knew what COVID-19 was. And today we spend our last day and our last passage from Mark's gospel to the church. If you would, would you please stand as we read Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 9 and reading on to verse 20. The word of God says this. Now, after he had risen early the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him, and they were mourning and weeping. When they heard all that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way in the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, and he who has, believed, who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, they will, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and they preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the wor confirmed by the wor signs that were followed. Please be seated. Now, I think we need to begin our time in this passage today by dealing with the elephant in the room. If you had looked at this passage in your own Bible, and I hope that you have, you would have undoubtedly noticed some sort of strange note surrounding this passage. Maybe if your Bible is like my Bible, there are brackets in there or, or, or parentheses that say that. Maybe it has a note before all of it starts or, or maybe it has it in a slightly different font or a different text type. And there's a reason for that. If you look at maybe the notes in your, your note-taking Bible or the references, you might see something that says early manuscripts end at verse 8 or later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. And you may say, well, that's different. And maybe you knew that was there, and maybe this is the first time that, that anyone's drawn your attention to it. And we here at Tunnel Hill, we're going to deal with things as they are, not as we want them to be. And the reality is, is what your Bible may take note of in verses 9 through 20 is true. For those of you that maybe don't know how our Bibles came into existence, we have taken a compilation of thousands and thousands of manuscripts that have been recovered all over Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. And we have brought those all together and, and, and formed the Bible that you now have in your hands. 
and, and have this complete work because people throughout history have pulled and copied and, and, and moved around and distributed copies of the Bible in different books and at different passages and different verses. You know, there was a point in time where it would have been illegal to have these things. And they pulled them all together, and eventually as they started putting all the pieces together, they came to a full, complete Bible that we are blessed to have today. Some of these older manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark were found in an area around North Africa. And with consistency, they all ended in verse 8. However, more manuscripts, and, and these manuscripts being younger in nature, more recently written, and we're not talking, you know, in the last hundred years, we're talking 1,500 years ago, do contain this longer ending in verses 19 through 20. So sometimes we look at that and we say, well, these, these manuscripts, these copies of the Gospel of Mark are older, and they're in pretty good shape, and they don't have it. And it looks like that it's not that they got tore off or, or, or something or got smudged. It's that it's not there. But we have so much more of these more recent ones that from different places in the world, from, from uh, the Israel area, from uh, Europe area, that, that do have this writing, do have this thing there. On top of that, we have writings from the early church and early church fathers that seem to indicate that they were at least familiar with, with what was contained within this longer ending. One such person is the early church father, Justin Martyr, who seems to, in his writing to one of the Roman leadership, refer to the longer ending of Mark and even quote it in a certain way. This gives us reason to believe that maybe this was, this was in existence, this longer manuscript did exist, and, and that he was aware of it even as early as the second century. These type of facts and even a, four, a few more interesting connections would lead us to be comfortable with taking up this passage this morning. I think we can be reasonably assured that this is here for our benefit. And that if God has saw fit to leave it in our scriptures for quite literally thousands of years, then we can be comfortable to dive into it and understand that God is in fact speaking to us. Indeed, these few verses help us understand how these trembling women who said nothing to no one eventually leave us to what we find in the first chapter of the book of Acts, where the people are gathered together believing and confident that Jesus has, in fact, risen from the grave. See, something had to have happened, right? Something had to have happened from the, these people that were um, scattered and scared to death and, and, and didn't want anything to do and didn't know what to do um, after their leader and their, their great teacher, their rabbi had died, to go from that point where they were scared and, and, and unbelieving and, and a, a fearful of what the Sanhedrin might do to them, to bring them to the point where they are boldly proclaiming the gospel around the globe. And that's the exact transition that we find at the end of the Gospel of Mark. And that's the transition that I want us to think about today. How do we go from scared, timid, worried people who don't know what the truth is to bold proclaimers of the good news in the world around us 
and all around the world. So let's get into our text today, and I want to start as we have already looked at it. I want to start and look at verses 9 all the way through uh, to verse 14. And if we think about what's happening here, we see uh, uh, that still those elements and still the same things that we finished off with in the, at the end of 8 when it says that they were gripped by fear and told no one. See, our passage begins with a deep sense of misbelief, or excuse me, of disbelief. These people cannot and will not and do not believe that what has happened has actually happened. As we begin into our passage into chapter 9, we find Mary Magdalene still behind and still in the, the cemetery, still by the tomb. We know that these other two women have, have gone back and they've, they've told nothing to no one. They were scared and they fled and they went home and they haven't told anything to anybody. And yet, for some reason, Mary Magdalene, who was not mentioned at the beginning of our chapter, maybe because she is not one of the ones who fled, is now found in the tomb, uh, or in by the tomb. And what we find from John chapter 20 is that she was weeping. Indeed, what we see in these first couple of verses from our passage today is confirmed by what we read in John chapter 20. As Mary was crying by the tomb, John chapter 20, starting in verse 15, reads that Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Going on down to verse 18 in John chapter 20, we read that Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. But I think it's important more than just who said it and what was said to notice the response of the disciples. Because when they hear this news, when Mary Magdalene, Mary who knew Jesus and Mary who, who was there with them, even from the, the, the main times and one who had never left him at the cross. And when she comes in and says, I've seen the Lord, I saw him with my own eyes and I spoke to him. What does it say in our passage today? But that they did not believe her. In fact, if we look at verse 11, it says quite clearly, but they refused to believe it. Moving forward, we find two followers of Jesus who are traveling out in the country. They, too, have an encounter with Jesus, and we read about this encounter in more detail in Luke chapter 24. It says, And behold, the two of them were going that very day to the village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about the things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, and, but their eyes had prevented them from seeing him. Ultimately, Jesus did reveal himself to them at the very end of this journey. And these men got up that very moment with fire in their chest and began to hurry back to Jerusalem in order to tell the disciples and all those who would remain that they too had seen the Lord. But again, we look. At verse 13, and it says, When they went away and reported it to the others, they did not believe them either. We have to ask ourselves the question, what on earth could create such hard-heartedness inside of these disciples? 
Why was it that they simply refused to believe? I think one answer, which is I think one that the Bible speaks to and one that certainly we can relate to, is it was just too good to be true. In fact, as we see in Luke 24, 41, they said that they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. They were looking at Jesus face to face in Luke chapter 24 and they could see him and they could touch him and and they had put their hands on, on his hands and maybe even touched his side and they were looking at him and even then they said, I just can't believe it. And so before they had seen him face to face and they're getting these reports and Mary Magdalene comes in and says, I saw him and I talked to him and this is what he said. And then these other two people, completely unrelated to Mary Magdalene, have left for the night. They think that they're going back home and suddenly they show back up and say, we saw him, we saw him, we saw him. And they said, I just can't and I won't believe it. I think we can get that. Sometimes things just seem too good to be true. In fact, to be honest, sometimes I think what Scripture tells us and what the gospel is also seems just too good to be true. You may be with us today and you're still kind of feeling out this Jesus thing. Or even just feeling out the church and you're trying to decide, like, is this stuff for real? Is this Jesus stuff for real? Is this gospel that they keep talking about and this this Jesus who died on the cross for my sins and was buried and rose again three days later and, and did all of that to save me from my sins and give me eternal life? Is this real? Because this seems too good to be true. Because these people may seem all like nice, well-meaning people and they're all nice little Kentucky church folk. But they don't know what I've been through. They don't know the sin that I've committed. They don't know how bad and how dark things have been. They don't know how deep into the pit I have gone. And surely, surely God has no interest in me. It's too good to be true. So I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait till I know all the bad is out of me. I'm going to wait till I get back into a good spot and then, then maybe Jesus will take me, but surely he wants nothing to do with me now. I'm going to wait till another opportunity. I'm going to wait till I hear the gospel again. I'm going to wait till someone knocks on my door or, or, or talks to me face to face. I'm going to wait for, for riding in the sky, burning bushes and talking donkeys. And maybe, just maybe, you can think that you already have a talking donkey in front of you now. You're not supposed to laugh that much. I'm going to wait for more information. I'm going to wait for a more convenient time. Some of us in this room, and I have no doubt some people that are watching us online, are still waiting. Waiting because this just seems too good to be true. But I want to challenge you today. What really are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the message to change? Because it won't. Are you waiting for the perfect time? Because it will never come. Are you waiting for everything to just finally fit perfectly? That may never happen. 
but the truth is right in front of you. And I think the evidence is clear. In this book that we call the Bible, in it, we can look to this and we can find the truth for our lives. We can find things that that will show us how to go through life. And even when the world tells us to go one way and we see time and time again that that way leads us to destruction and hopelessness and failure and empty promises, this book continues to show us the truth and life and meaning and purpose in all things. If you are waiting for something, stop waiting. Because the truth is right in front of you. The truth is sitting around you. As you look around this room, you will see dozens of sinners. People who were in the pit just like you. Who struggled with sin. Some struggled alone. Others struggled in the public eye. Who have failed, who have experienced heartache and sorrow and life and loss and yet... God has transformed them by the good news of the gospel. If you are here today and you look around this room and you see people who are followers of Jesus that have hope in the midst of all this hopelessness and have joy in the midst of all this sorrow and you're wondering how could they have stayed this way, know this, it is not because of them, but because of the life they have in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of them. And I want to challenge you one more time, and I want to tell you this, if you are still waiting, the evidence is in your heart. If you're watching online or you're in this room today, and you keep coming back and you're wanting a little bit more information, is not even now your heart crying out? Show me the way. Show me the truth. Show me the light. Show me that there is something more to all of this thing that we call life under the sun than what I'm experiencing right now. Surely there is more to life than to get up and go to work and come home and mow your lawn and eat a meal and go to bed. Surely there is more to all the suffering under the sun than what I am seeing right now. And the answer is yes. Your heart is crying out now because you were not made for this world. And your heart longs for something that cannot be satisfied by this world. And that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. You will notice in verse 14 that afterwards when he finally appeared to the eleven themselves, he reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. That word, reproach, we don't use that word a lot. I've never had one of my daughters come home from school, and I'm like, how was school today? And they're like, well, it was a little rough. I forgot to turn in my homework, and my teacher reproached me. If they did, I hope it was their vocabulary teacher, because that's a good word. But it means that he chastised them. He got on to them, and it wasn't like a, 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 you know, we all have this, like, really tame, domesticated view of Jesus, where Jesus was like, tut, tut, tut. No, he, he told them, what is your problem? He got onto them. He says, he, he showed up and they're like, oh my gosh, it's you. And he's like, well, no, duh. 
How many times did I tell you that this is exactly what was going to happen? How many times did I teach you that I was going to be betrayed and crucified and buried and that I would rise from the grave three days later, which is now? How many times did you hear the truth and then you have Mary, whom you know and know not to be crazy, telling you she saw me and she talked to me. And then you have two guys that came, was so convinced that they saw me that they made the seven-mile run. I think that's what churches should start doing is like they're, instead of a 5K, we should do a seven-miler. An uphill and call it and start. That's what they should change the road to Emmaus here. It should not be a weekend Bible study. It should be a seven-mile run uphill. Because that's what they did. And they ran there. And probably through trying to catch their breath and, 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 and bring life back into their legs, they said, We saw him. And Jesus is saying, Why didn't you believe him? And brothers and sisters, the scary thing is, as we kick this can down the road, and as we wait till our life is perfect to start living for him, and as we wait for the perfect time or the perfect sermon or the perfect gospel presentation or the perfect conditions or whatever that perfect thing is, eventually you are going to run out of time. And eventually you're going to stand before Jesus and make no mistake, there's going to come a day where you too will see Jesus face to face and you will look at Jesus face to face and you know what he's going to say? Why didn't you believe them? Why did you not believe that Sunday school teacher that told you about Jesus? Why did you not believe that bald-headed preacher that told you about Jesus? Why did you not believe that woman who left that bag hanging on your door and you went out to talk to her? Why did you not believe that friend or that co-worker, that mother or that father, that grandmother or that grandfather that told you about Jesus? Why? And you'll know that no excuse you can muster will change Jesus' mind. And it will be too late. And there will be no more time to believe and repent and be saved. And believe they did. It's interesting because we don't actually see in the passage that there was this major conversion event. If we look at verse 14, it says, He appeared to them, to the eleven, as he was, as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. And then he immediately, verse fifteen, and he said to them, "Go into all the nations and preach the gospel to all creation." We actually don't have a verse or a line that says, "But now they believed," but we know they did. The disciples now saw Jesus face to face. And his scolding them for their unbelief meant that they finally would start to believe. They had to experience Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I hope that even as you are here today, that you will experience Jesus as well. Ultimately, that is the call in our lives. Will you hear the good news? Will you search your heart Will you sense what Jesus is doing and what the Spirit is doing inside of you? And will you believe in Christ? 
In case you don't know what that means, Jesus clarifies that even in our own passage as we look at verse 16. He says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved will be condemned. We see this tied very well and very clearly to Romans chapter 8 when it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Who knows, maybe even Paul had this verse from the Gospel of Mark in his mind when he was writing Romans. And he was saying to them, first, you need to believe. You need to believe that I'm really here. That's what he was saying to the apostles. For you, you have to believe that what this guy is saying is true, that the the Bible is true, that Jesus was real, and not only real, but that he rose from the grave. You have to believe that with all your heart, and then you need to act upon it. That's what baptism is. He says, believe and be baptized. He says, you need to believe, and then the outpouring of that belief should be your obedience. We talked about in Sunday school this morning that we are called as followers of God to believe, to fear the Lord, which I think has belief wrapped up in it, and to obey. And we are called to do that same thing in saving faith is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be obedient to him. And our first act of obedience is baptism. Maybe you're here today and you've, you've kind of done the Jesus thing and maybe you said, you know, I, I believe this stuff. I think that these people are, are telling the truth and I believe this is real and I, I want to follow Jesus. But you've been kind of keeping that to yourself. Kind of having your little secret thing. Like, yeah, I, I think that this is true, but I don't know what to do about it. The scripture says that, that, that in order for us to be saved, we have to believe And then we have to make that known. Confess him as Lord. Make him the Lord of your life. Obey him. And there is no better way to start that than through baptism. Because that is when you go in front of all the people. And you say, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am going to start living for him and not myself. That's what baptism is. I would encourage you, if that is something that God is laying on your heart, to make that public profession of faith, to say, I I do believe and I want to make it known and I want to follow Jesus with my life, then don't wait anymore. But when we're done and we, we say that final prayer and Joe comes up to sing that final song, you come up and you say, hey, I want to be baptized. I want these people to know, I want all people to know that I am going to do the Lord's will with my life. And don't worry, it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect after that. It just means you're going to point your nose in the right direction. This invitation is still offered to you today. As I said before, it doesn't matter how deep in the pit you are currently or how deep in the pit you were once. Jesus told his disciples to make the the gospel known, and the gospel is this, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will confess him as Lord and make him the Lord of your life, you will be saved. He doesn't care where you've been. In fact, we discussed in my Sunday school class this morning that God takes where you've been and he sanctifies that and he glorifies that in a way that will move you into ministries that you cannot imagine. 
11 men who refused to believe that Jesus rose from the grave made the gospel so known throughout the world that we are sitting here in Kentucky 2,000 years later still proclaiming that good news. He will use you. He can use you. And he will do far more in you than you could possibly imagine if you will just surrender yourself to him. From this, he sent them. And indeed, from verse 15 all the way through verse 20, we see that Jesus commissions his men to go and to do the work. Our passage immediately jumps to the fact what they ought to do now that they believe. He gives them this command, and I don't want you to, to sit on this command or brush over it. He says, go into the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. Now, a lot of you, if you open up your Bibles and you look at it, it might have this thing that says, preach the gospel. And that's right. It's this word, caruso, it means to, to preach, to call out, to shout, to proclaim. And we, unfortunately, in our day and age, we have reduced preaching down to what you're listening to right now. And make no mistake, I, I do believe that there were times where people like the apostles and other people who are pastors and preachers in the, the, the early church, they probably did something similar to this, where one guy had the Bible and he relayed the message of the Bible and explained it to them. We even see it in Nehemiah in the Old Testament. But when they use this word, when they use this phrase, preach the Bible or preach the gospel, they did not have me in mind. They did not have a pulpit or a stage. They did not have a building or an 11 o'clock service on Sunday morning. They had you in mind. They had all of us in mind. And the gospel wasn't going to only be proclaimed at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, but the gospel is going to be proclaimed on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in the synagogue, Sunday as they went out and about. It was going to be on the highways and the byways, the street corners and the trails. It was going to be in the marketplace and in the synagogue. And all people, all where, were going to proclaim to everyone who would listen that Jesus is alive. And so this call to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation is not just for me. But it is for everyone who draws breath and believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And not only does he call him, them to this, but he prepares them and empowers them to that very job. I think it's interesting that, that all of this kind of begins as he does this commissioning by letting them know that people will believe, but people will not believe. You see verse 15, he said to them, go into all of the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. He who has believed and been baptized will be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. This is still true today. I know that many of you, if we even think about what is our big, how are we trying to share Christ with people right now? The big thing that we as a church are doing together is gospel to every home. We are meeting up on Sundays at 5.30, on Wednesdays at 6.30, and we are going out into neighborhoods that surround our church. Some of you are here because somebody, you saw somebody going around in a neighborhood. And we go out and we share Christ with people, and I know that some of you have not showed up to do that because you are scared to death that you might actually have to talk to a human being. 
And you're afraid more than anything that when you talk to that human being, they are not going to be interested. And they may even be unfriendly towards you. And you don't want to deal with that, especially because you don't want to think that maybe it was your fault because you dressed funny or something. You were wearing a Louisville t-shirt and he was a Kentucky person. And trust me, no one is going to go to hell just because they cheer for the wrong team. That's true. And that's coming from a Missouri fan. And you know how I feel about people from other states around Missouri. You know this. And so you don't come. Because either you're afraid that you're going to mess up or that you're going to experience something unpleasant. Well, let me, let me remove the suspense. You're going to meet people who are going to refuse the gospel and not believe. I mean, you know what? That's okay. Because even though this passage says that some people will disbelieve, some people will not believe and be condemned, the good news is that some people will believe. And I don't know if you've ever been with someone and you've shared Christ with them and you've talked about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and they've said, yeah, I'm ready to do that. I want to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I will just put it this way. It is awesome. It is amazing. It is life transforming. It is better than any roller coaster that Kings Island or, or anywhere else could possibly have. It is a rush and it is a buzz and it is the thing that carries people into more and more and more evangelism. It is worth it. So don't be afraid to share Christ because people might reject you. They might reject Christ. I'll make it simple for you. People will reject Christ if you share Christ with people. But other people will believe. And that's why we do it. Not only does he prepare them in this way, but he also empowers them to accomplish the mission. Verse 17 says that signs will accompany those who have believed. And then he gives us this list of things that will happen. He says that they will, those who go to proclaim the gospel, those who believe will cast out demons, speak in tongues, pick up snakes, drink poison, lay hands on people and heal them. Now, I want to remind you that these are all things that the disciples were given, powers and, and abilities and, and equipment that the disciples were given to share Christ with people. These were not superpowers suddenly bestowed upon these individuals. It is not that you believe in Jesus and suddenly become a mighty morphin power ranger who can do amazing things. If you don't know what one of those is, ask a young person. But it means that God will give you exactly what you need in order to share Christ with people. It is the very reason why these words and these actions are seen in the book of Acts. It is not because we're supposed to bring snakes and sit here and start throwing them out around. We don't use these things that Jesus told them as tests of authentic discipleship, but we recognize that these are the means by which God will make the gospel known. We do not test God, but we trust God will give us what we need, when we need it, to share Christ with the people around us. To give you the example of maybe the most interesting one in the bunch, we'll go to Acts chapter 28. And in Acts chapter 28, we read these words. It says that, that when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, and by the way, this creature was a snake, 
Paul had been out on an, he would been on an island. Shipwrecks have happened. If you haven't read the book of Acts, it's a great story. You got to got to check it out. And a snake comes up and bites him, and, and to the point that he holds up his hand, and the snake is hanging from his hand. Everybody who's afraid of snakes, get your heebie-jeebies out right now. And they began saying to one another, listen to this, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not, has not allowed him to live. This was how the people of that island where Paul was perceived what had happened as this snake was hanging from his hand. They looked at it and said, well, clearly the gods must be punishing this man because even though he escaped the the shipwreck and the storms of the sea, now God's going to make sure, the gods are going to make sure that he gets it. And then it says this, verse 5, it says, however, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. And suddenly these people had what we would call cognitive dissonance. What they thought was true was suddenly very, very not true. And they suddenly realized that the way they understood the world and the way that they saw the world and the means by which they uh, contacted and interacted with the supernatural was suddenly out the window. And Paul had an open door to preach the good news of Christ with them. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. I was at camp one year, and I was walking up the stairs to my cabin at the director's cabin, and as I got to the very top step, I found myself eye-to-eye with a big black rat snake, which is not poisonous, but they big. I did not reach out to grab him. I got someone else with a stick who went and dealt with that myself. But make no mistake, there have been many other times in my life where God has given me the words I needed to share Christ with someone. Or because of who knows what, I got put in the right place at the right time to share Jesus with someone, and that is the same thing. And so God will equip you, and God will give you everything you need in order to share Christ with people. The only thing stopping you from sharing Christ with the people around you, whether it's gospel to every home or your work situation or your friend situation, is your willing heart. Let God decide how they respond. You share and share faithfully. If anything, this list points us to the book of Acts and reminds us that God will provide us exactly what we need to share Christ with the world around us, even if all we need is the Bible and a willing spirit. And go they did. As we close out our passage, we see these. And they went out and they preached everywhere. Christ left, went to sit at the right hand of his Father, and the people preached. And the world started to believe and we are here today and brothers and sisters our mission has not changed our tools have not changed our message has not changed and if you are with us today and you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you've not surrendered your life to him if you've not followed in baptism then we invite you to do that today and to come and be with us on this glorious adventure that we call Christianity. If you are here today and you've done those things and you are ready to lock shields with this church and to be in fellowship with this church and to move forward with this church as we accomplish the mission that God has laid before us, then we would invite you to do that very thing. 
Jesus was very clear. He said, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The gospel, hopefully, is what you have heard today. And the gospel is why we exist. Will you join us as we do this very thing? Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. God, we praise you because we recognize that, that you have been at work in all of this. And even as we look at this last passage and this last part of the gospel of Mark, Lord, we praise you that you have made it clear who we are and what we are called to do. God, it is my hope and my prayer that every single person in this room will find their meaning and their purpose in the words of Jesus. That we are to go into the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. Lord, I pray that we will take up that, that calling and begin right here as we continue to get the gospel to every home. But God, I know that we are in this room, and for some of us in this room, it really needs to start in our hearts by believing the gospel, surrendering our lives to the gospel, being baptized and joining in fellowship with this church. Lord, I pray that we will not wait. I pray that we will not refuse to believe or, or seek after more evidence. But God, that we will listen to the longings of our heart. That we will believe. And that we will be transformed. God, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.